Well, as you sit down, let me uh, uh, welcome you, uh, add my own welcome to that of uh, my colleague Andrews earlier in the service. Uh, you're very, very welcome, especially if you're here for the first time. Uh, let me also uh, wish you all a very happy new year. Uh, as we uh, now turn to the Bible, you might like to grab hold of the insert, uh, the uh, handout, the sermon outline uh, that was tucked inside um, the uh, service order as you came in, and that will help you to see where we're going uh, in the next few moments. You'll see the... Um, Uh, The title, Evangelism, Food for the Christian. Food for the Christian, that's what we're thinking about today, which might seem a strange subject following the festive period and I guess some extravagant indulgence in the eating department. But as we head into the new year, with our resolutions bright and shiny and some of them may be still intact, I want to bring before you a resolution that could bring about a revolution. Uh, Christian, are you hungry? Are you hungry to make something of your life? See, here we are at the beginning of another year, not just with 2009 behind us, but with the decade that is now known as the noughties uh, behind us. Many of us will be thinking, where has the last 10 years gone? Have you thought that? Over the last couple of days, I've thought that several times. Where have the last 10 years gone? The years seem to fly by quicker and quicker. That is a comment of somebody who's getting older, doesn't it? Um, What are we doing with our lives as these years fly by? Uh, Richard Buse, the former rector of All Souls Langham Place, wakes up every morning and he says this to himself, another exciting day on planet Earth with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in his 70s, yet with a youthful enthusiasm for life which is truly infectious, wanting to make something of life, grabbing every day by the scruff of the neck, not allowing each day, each week, each month, each year, each decade to just drift by. Now, I'm not sure most of us have the same appetite for life. I keep meeting Christians who are largely going through the motions. Christians whose appetite for life is, is not so different from anyone else's, really. Christians who get up in the morning to go to work, to earn some money, to pay the bills to have then a little bit of leisure and pleasure along the way. I meet some Christians who are just thoroughly dissatisfied with life. Think of one Christian man I spoke to when I worked uh, in London. He said this to me, I used to be so excited about being a Christian. When I was at university, I felt the thrill of following Jesus every day. Becoming a Christian, I felt that I was now on a mission. But now, well now it's all just a bit dull. He was a delightful man in his mid-thirties and following that comment we we met for a coffee to chat more. He told me how he felt his life was, he felt that his life was just sort of stuck in a rut. How he still went to church, how he still read his Bible, but it was all very predictable. Felt he was just going through the motions most of the time. I asked him about those days at university and as he told me about them his face lit up as he remembered how exciting it was to be part of the Christian Union. He told me how he used to knock on doors of other students with questionnaires about Christianity, how he would invite his friends to Christian meetings, how he was committed to seeing his friends introduced to Jesus. And now? No, I don't do any of that anymore, he said. And so I asked him if he thought there just might be a link between his feeling excited about following Jesus and his passion to tell people about Jesus. Now look, there can be many reasons for feeling spiritually dry and in the 
spiritual doldrums, but this man and many I meet feel spiritually famished because they've given up trying to tell people about Jesus. So as we turn to John chapter 4, we'll discover that telling people the gospel feeds us, the Christian. Talking to people about Jesus is spiritual food for the Christian. Now look, you'll know that. Just think how you feel, how it, how it lifts you when you've had a good conversation with someone about the Lord Jesus Christ. See, telling people about Jesus encourages us. More than that, it actually feeds us spiritually. That's what we'll find as we look at John chapter 4. Turn with me to page 1066 uh, in the Bible. Page 1066, John chapter 4. And we come to our first point on the handout, full up and encouraged. As we, arrived at, uh, as we arrive at the beginning of John chapter 4, we discover Jesus heading off for Galilee, end of verse 3. And in order to get there, he has to go through Samaria. You'll see that in verse 4. And John gives us a piece of very important information to help us understand this chapter. It's there at the end of verse 9. You see, John writes, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. In fact, some Jews were so anti-Samaritan that on a journey they would rather bypass Samaria than go right through the area. Rather, than go, uh, rather go out of their way than run the risk of meeting a Samaritan. But not Jesus. See verse 3, uh, verse 5. He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour, the, the very heat of the day. And you see the humanity of Jesus here. He was tired, he was thirsty, he was hungry, verse 8. He sent his disciples into town to buy some food, to go to the nearest co-op. And while the disciples were away, verse 7, a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now that was the beginning of a fascinating discussion with the woman at the well that goes on right through to verse 27, 28. We'll look at Jesus engaging with that woman next week. But now, remembering that Jesus was tired and thirsty and hungry, look on towards the end of the chapter. Verse 27. The disciples arrive back from their trip into town uh, to buy food and they found Jesus talking to the woman. She leaves, verse 28, and then verse 31, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? See, having to send the disciples away to get food when he was tired and thirsty and hungry, now the disciples, having returned with food, are urging Jesus to eat, but he refuses. Because, verse 32, he has food that they know nothing about. The disciples presume that someone has beaten them to it and brought Jesus some food. In verse 33, someone already brought them food? Now at this point they're missing the point. And we will miss the point too, unless we grasp what John does as he writes his gospel. You see, John uses physical truths to explain spiritual realities. And let me show you what I mean. Back in John chapter 3, when the Pharisee Nicodemus approached Jesus. John tells us in chapter 3 verse 2 that Nicodemus went to Jesus at night. It was dark. Chapter 3 verse 2, he went at night. As the discussion goes on between Nicodemus and Jesus, we discover that Nicodemus is spiritually in the dark. He, he appeared to be a man who, of great learning, 
But he's clueless, he's in the dark when it comes to understanding who Jesus is and what God wants for us. And you see, John uses spiritual truths, it was, uh, sorry, physical truths, it was night time, to explain spiritual realities. Nicodemus was in the dark about who Jesus was. The same happens in our chapter, chapter 4, and we'll see more of this next week. The woman Jesus met at the well was thirsty, that's why she'd gone to the well. Physically thirsty, she went to draw water. But as their conversation develops, we discover this woman is thirsty for all sorts of other things, for love. She's thirsty for meaning in life. And that is why Jesus says to her in chapter 4, verse 14, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Do you see, John uses physical truths to explain spiritual realities. He does it all the way through his gospel. She is physically thirsty, but as this conversation goes on, we discover that she is spiritually thirsty too. Now, John does exactly the same thing with food here in chapter 4. Jesus was physically hungry. Here is Jesus in all his humanity, identifying with us, tired from the journey, thirsty from the heat of the day, exhausted and needing food. But by the time the disciples arrive back with the food that he so needed, it seems his hunger is gone. And so the disciples asked, verse 33, could someone have brought him food? And Jesus replied, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. From the time the disciples left to the time they returned, Jesus has been fed spiritually. What has he been doing? He's been talking to this Samaritan woman about the good news of the God who loves her and who can forgive her and who can satisfy her deepest need. Jesus has been about the work of evangelism, the work of, if I can use this word, redemption. Or as he describes it here in verse 34, the work of God. Now I've put on the handout the references for the work of God in John's Gospel. Those are all the references, as far as I can tell, in John's Gospel that talk about the work of God. Read through them when you get home, and you'll discover, as I've written on the, on the handout there, that the work of God is the work of redemption through Christ's sacrificial death, bringing people to believe and to eternal life. That, of course, is what Jesus has been doing with the Samaritan woman. He's been telling her who he is, what he can do for her. He's been bringing her to believe in him. He's been about the work of evangelism. And that has filled him up spiritually, as food fills us up physically. Uh, the Monday after the Carols by Candlelight services, I had an email from someone in the congregation that was such an encouragement. Uh, in the email she explained that emotionally she wasn't feeling great as she turned up for the Carols by Candlelight service, but then I quote, at the end of the service I decided that I would not continue wallowing or be the usual coward I was, but I would go for coffee and talk to strangers. I could have met anyone from our church family that I didn't know, but the three people in front of me in the queue for coffee were three people who only come to our church once a year for the carol service. I'm usually worried about putting people off and talk safely, but I thought, these people come here once a year and they may never hear the gospel again before they die. I have to talk to them, and so I did. And they talk so honestly and openly, and then she goes on to talk more about how they spoke. And the great thing was, you see, she was lifted by the whole experience. So excited that she emailed me to tell me more. 
And you see the point, being about this work of God, this work of redemption, pointing people to the sacrificial death of Christ, bringing people to believe and to eternal life, being about this work feeds us, it fills us. Many of you know that. You've had that experience. You've invited your friends to come to Carols by Candlelight and you told me how excited you were that they were coming. Of course you were. Well, as we head into this new year, let me encourage you to carry on with that work at the beginning of this year and right through the year. Let me encourage you to do it next week. Next week we'll be looking again at John chapter 4. We'll look at the woman at the well. This woman who who tried all sorts of things but was really totally dissatisfied with life. It will be ideal to invite your friends too to come and hear next week. Why don't you just say to them, just as you did as we were leading up to, up to the Cows by Candlelight services, you did such a good job inviting people. Why don't you say to your friends, would you come to church with me next week? The worst they can do is say no. If they came to Carols by Candlelight, why didn't you say to them, do you remember, at Carols by Candlelight we were given an invitation to come to church in the new year. Will you come next week as my guest? That would be a great thing to say. And I think we'll be surprised how many people will come. And on top of that, you'll find yourself built up, fed spiritually. Let me encourage you to be involved in the Passion for Life mission as we head towards March. March the 22nd to the 28th are the dates for your diary. Uh, we're going to try and visit the whole parish in February. We need a couple of hundred people to visit about 20 homes each and then we can cover the whole parish. Would you join in with that? It will be scary, but I guarantee you as you do it, you'll come away feeling built up and encouraged and fed spiritually. See, this work does us good. Evangelism leaves us full up and encouraged. That's what happened to Jesus here. And so... Uh, Having firstly realised point one, that we uh, can be filled up and encouraged, uh, Jesus then says over the page, second point, get up and reap. Look at verse 35. Do you not say, four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. Jesus' message is clear. There is a ripe harvest field in the world. People are ready to become Christians, so go and tell them, get up and reap, he says. Of course, our temptation, my temptation, is always to put off this work of telling people about Jesus. Do you have that problem? I'll leave it. It's not right at the moment. Uh, to leave this work until it's harvest time. See, that's what Jesus says. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? Yeah, that's exactly what we say. Now, on the handout, I've quoted uh, G. Campbell Morgan there. He writes this. If those disciples had been appointed a commission of inquiry as to the possibilities of Christian enterprise in Samaria, I know exactly the resolution they would have passed. The resolution would have been Samaria unquestionably needs our master's message, but it's not ready for it. There must first be ploughing, then sowing, and then waiting. It is needy, but it's not ready. That's verse 35, isn't it? Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? That's exactly what we say, not now. We're always tempted to to put off telling people about Jesus. They won't be interested. They're perfectly happy with their life as it is. 
They're too busy to come to church with me. What if they want to come to church on a Sunday morning when they can lie in and have a cup of coffee and read the Sunday papers? Sorry, I'm not encouraging you to do that next week. We're always tempted to put off the work of evangelism. And not only as individuals, but as a church too. And so Leon Morris, again quoted on here, agrees with G. Campbell Morgan's observation. He writes this, Can't you hear many of our ecclesiastical assemblies passing just such a motion? We're always, always ready to recognise needy areas, but just as ready to find perfectly good reasons why we should do nothing for the present. Listen again to what Jesus says, verse 35. Do you not say, four months more and then the harvest? But I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest, even now. So Jesus says, get on with sowing the seed of the gospel. Get on with reaping the harvest and leading people to Christ. And as if to prove that it is harvest time, in verses 39 to 42 that we'll look at in a few weeks' time, we see many of the Samaritans in the town believing the woman's testimony about Jesus. See, the harvest was right. Virtually the whole town became Christian. So go and sow the seed of God's word. Go and reap the harvest where others have already sown. Get on with this work of telling people the gospel, for it is God's work. That's what Jesus is saying here. This is God's work, and when we're about his work, we benefit too. It will be like food to you. It will do you good. You see, God has a passion for life, to steal the phrase of the mission that's coming up. He made life. He has gone to extraordinary lengths to save people for eternal life. He offers life in all its fullness. He has a passion for life that people may not die eternally. And he has a passion for life now. When we are about what he is about, we too will have life in all its fullness and we too will rediscover perhaps a passion for life that we've lost. But for many, many Christians I mean, that passion for life has waned. Could it be that your enthusiasm for life, that feeling of satisfaction, has faded as you've lost your appetite to tell people about Jesus? The two go hand in hand very often. So here's a New Year's resolution for you. Bring your life in line with God's plan for his world. Be about the work that God is about. See, Christian, how do you view your life? What does it mean that you're a Christian? The language we use in becoming a Christian really doesn't help, I don't think. We often talk about asking Jesus into our lives. But a far more biblical phrase for becoming a Christian is to be in Christ. I think the difference is immense. I've uh, tried to do it diagrammatically on the back of our uh, handout. Uh, you'll see uh, the figure one and figure two. When we talk about asking Jesus into our life, of course there's an element of truth in that. We can read verses like, Christ in us, the hope of glory. The Holy Spirit does come and live in our lives. That's figure one. But to think about being in Christ, figure two, changes the way I think about what is happening when I'm converted. See, in figure one, if I ask Jesus into my life, see it spatially, here's my little life and Jesus is going to come into it and be part of it. So I carry on my little life with my little plans and my little ambitions and I incorporate Jesus into it. 
But figure two, spatially, see the difference? If I realise that when I become Christian I am in Christ, see the difference it makes? I'm the one who moves. Here is Christ and here is what he is doing. He is about the work of redeeming mankind. He is on God's mission to save God's world. And by being in Christ, I am bringing my life in line with his great purposes for the world. Being in Christ, I bring my life in line with his and it affects how I spend my time and my money, what I daydream about, how I plan for my future. It affects the decisions I make, the person I'll marry, the place I'll live. It's all to be brought in line with his mission. Now, waking up to that every morning is an exciting adventure with Jesus Christ on planet Earth. It gives me direction. And it wonderfully feeds me. It gives me a passion for life. Now I know what I'm made for. Christians who have not brought their lives in line with God's work will always feel less than satisfied with life. Let me tell you as we draw to a close how I think it works out in Christian men. We are made to be on a mission. We are, if I can use this phrase, hunter-gatherers. We're not meant to be sitting at home with nothing to do, watching the telly, just seeing the decades pass by. We are made for mission. And so we're always looking for something to throw our energy into. Because if we don't have something like that, we'll wither and become grumpy old men, and there are plenty of those around. So we need to throw ourselves into something. We have to be on a mission. We are made to be on a mission. And usually, for men, it's work, our paid employment. So when Christian men don't get stuck into the mission that God is on, they go on another mission. They look for satisfaction in their work, satisfaction that never truly comes. They ask Jesus into their little lives. Rather than transferring their lives and their ambitions and their energies into God's mission for his world. And that's why midlife is such a crisis for men because one day they wake up to realise that a lot of their life has already gone. They've thrown so much of their lives into something that doesn't really count for much and it wasn't really worth their life's work and mission anyway. That's why retirement is so devastating for men because their mission is ripped away from them. But it needn't be like that for the Christian. To be part of God's work, of his mission for the world, gives us meaning, it feeds us, and we never retire from it. And so as we head into this new year, this new decade, as we head towards our Passion for Life and our Passion for Life Mission Week in March, Christian, will you be about this work of redemption, of telling people about the glorious gospel of Christ? It's a great New Year's resolution. It's a New Year's resolution that could bring about a revolution to this whole city. A revolution for you, the excitement and fulfilment of being part of God's mission in his world. And a revolution in the lives of others as they are introduced to the one who can give them abundant life and eternal life. Let's pray together.